Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivani. As the U.S. economy continues to recover from the pandemic, employers are facing headwinds finding the skilled workers they need in healthcare and many other sectors. This has put renewed attention on the country's education and training capacity. Our guest today is perfectly positioned to help us understand what's happening on that front. Deborah Quazo is managing partner at GSV Ventures, a female-led fund investing in the $7 trillion global education market. Its portfolio of companies include leaders in the space, many of whom we featured on Ray's line, including Coursero, Guild, Coursera, Turnitin, and others. She's also on the board of Ascend, whose CEO, Greg Sobaski, we had on the show a couple months ago. Two small world connections before we begin. First, her daughter, Caroline, was in my entryway as a resident tutor back at Harvard. And then when I was at HBS, Harvard Business School, where Deborah also graduated from, I was actually funded in part from a scholarship named after her father. And when I visited Deborah and team in Chicago, I actually picked up that hot off the press HBS case about GSV and about her specifically. So Deborah, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Shiv. Thank you. Love that you, you did my dad's fellowship. It was really cool. Totally. Very small world. And uh, that was about 2015. So five years have passed since then. So, you know, I obviously know a lot about you and anybody in education tech knows your background, but since our audience comprises a lot of healthcare students and professionals, do you mind giving us a bit about your career highlights and specifically what got you so passionate about education? Yeah, sure. Really been working in education innovation for 25 years with my partner, Michael Moe, who's based in Silicon Valley. I'm generally based in Chicago. And really got there through, Michael was a Wall Street growth strategist. And in the mid-1990s, actually relevant for the healthcare world, he put out a thesis that said the education sector was ripe to become a critical emerging growth investment category and that it had many analogs to healthcare. You know, second largest percentage of GDP relative to healthcare looking at healthcare and how it had turned over time, um, very little application of technology for education versus healthcare at, at that point, highly fragmented, but an essential service, relatively few emerging great entrepreneurs at the time, again, back in the mid-1990s, and pretty abysmal results. And yet such a critically important delivery, it just looked like a category that would be ripe for great entrepreneurs to enter and look to build novel businesses and great solutions at scale. So it was a little bit early in predicting that in the mid-1990s. We really didn't begin to see movement in building great scaled businesses until around the 2010 period when you had companies like Coursera and Coursero and Duolingo and Quizlet and others begin to be formed. But but yeah, so I, you know, I was an investment banker, did begin working with Michael 25 years ago. So I've been in the segment, you know, way before education technology got sexy, which is a relatively recent phenomenon. And um, I just got impassioned. I had been a broad growth focused investment banker, but really got hooked on education and its importance and the kind of good you could do getting, getting out of bed every morning, working with great entrepreneurs who are creating great solutions um, like you. So I, you know, Michael and I founded a company called Think Equity Partners, sold that in 2007 and left in 2008. And at that point, I decided I was going to hunker down and basically devote my my entire personal and professional career to education innovation and education technology, specifically on the professional side. And um, our mantra is that all people deserve equal access to the future with all, you know, ALL and capital letters. Um, and we believe that the wedge for that really is offering high quality, low cost education at scale is the way that we can get there. And um, so that's been sort of the singular mission since sort of 2008. And it worked out to be pretty good timing to drop everything and get involved. 
Well, that's one of the, we had Burke Smith from Straighter Line on the podcast also a couple of months ago, and he said a quote that I really liked. He said, if you stick around long enough, your timing is perfect. And clearly you guys were very early on to the education tech sector and, and certainly the leaders. And then this past year and a half has had a lot of incredible tailwinds for online learning. I'm sure it's pretty validating. Do you mind giving us your assessment of how the last 18 months have gone and what are the macro changes that you think are here to stay in higher education? Yeah, I, I think that it's just such a fundamental habit change. And, you know, we look at pre-K to gray education and skills. And, you know, obviously, as my partner, Michael Mo will say, you know, 1.6 billion people were thrown into the deep end of the, the online learning pool overnight and um, forced to sink or swim. And, you know, and some sank, obviously, and some swam and some got to the edge of the pool and got out and don't want to come back. But, but for the most part, it was even in such, you know, obviously, there's a lot of mixed delivery in the K-12 system. But even there, I think what you've seen is just such, you know, you now have four-year-olds facile with Zoom. All teachers have now been, all teachers in K-12 and all faculty members are now totally facile with being online instructors. And I, you know, while things can improve, it certainly got people over the, if there was anyone reticent to begin delivering their learning, their teaching online, it was, you know, the reticence is now gone. Um, it's really interesting. I was on a board call today just talking about the movement, the, the things that happened like textbooks no longer being relevant, that actually the whole COVID move, you know, where textbooks were already becoming less and less relevant in the move to digital content, but in, in digital, you know, obviously have digital textbooks, but, you know, animated and, you know, active and adaptive digital content. And this company was actually showing in their numbers, the complete drop off the cliff of textbook related materials in their business, uh, which is related to math. So I think it's really across the board. Corporations were already trying to get rid of, you know, gatherings in hotels and things like that. And I think, you know, corporations have seen the ability to deliver synchronous online learning and, and hybrid online learning. And I think many don't just want to stick a video in front of people and see if people can learn. I think they want multifaceted delivery and everybody was forced to do that. And I think it, I think it worked pretty well. Um, and then, of course, in the higher ed space, higher ed is, our, is such an interesting beast because I think it's got to be defined so much more broadly. It's not the 30% of people who get degrees in, on site in the 18 to 22 year old category. It's the entire adult population on the assumption that everybody needs continued education or needs education if they didn't get it in the first go round. And the demand far exceeds the ability, ability of physical buildings to supply it, particularly in developing countries like India and elsewhere, China, et cetera. So universities were already going online pretty aggressively. We have so many great innovators here in the U.S., like Southern New Hampshire and Arizona State and Purdue and Western Governors. And we saw it in, our, in the Coursera numbers from January. They launched a Coursera for campus, I think, in February, which was sort of an overnight, you know, turnkey solution to move online for universities all over the world, you know, including the packaging of Coursera content with other universities. They launched the product in February, coincidentally, you know, right ahead of COVID. And uh, I think they had a million learners on the platform by May. So, um, yeah, we just, uh, you know, I think certainly we'll see people go back and certainly in the K-12 system, you know, children need to be together. Um, but I think even there, you've seen this, this concept of, you know, remote learning being such a stupid term because remote learning means you're learning at home and, you know, shouldn't all children be learning at home and you know, shouldn't we make sure that all children have the ability to have bandwidth and devices to be able to learn at home. And so great things happening around the funding of getting low-income kids the right access to bandwidth and, and devices. That leaves me really optimistic 
So I, I think that, you know, while we'll have some companies we'll see pullback, I think in general, it's just sort of vaulted the sector forward by two years. Um, you know, we're projecting hitting a trillion dollar category in ed tech in um, 2027, 28 versus previously we, we would have thought it would have been in the 30s. So um, it was a pretty extraordinary event. Those are some incredible numbers you were sharing. I remember like one of the things that always stood out when you and Michael spoke at these ASU GSB events was kind of the relative market cap in education was only in the tens or hundreds of billions relative to a $7 trillion global industry, showing that there wasn't as much general consumer interest or investment in the space. But now, obviously, there's so much, so many mega rounds and things happening. You mentioned Coursera a couple of times. Um, obviously, we're talking, you know, just a couple of weeks after 2U announced acquisition of edX, and we've had all the CEOs on the podcast. And then Apollo just acquired McGraw-Hill. Like, there's so much consolidation and movement happening in the space. You know, do you think that's going to continue for some time and it's going to outperform yeah, Upgrad from India just acquired ID Tech in the K-12 space, which is a technology training business that has typically partnered with universities to, to locate these you know, physical camps. And then obviously in COVID moved to digital camps for young people in college campuses. So I think it's interesting because I think you're beginning to see companies like, like Baiju, like Upgrad, um, and there will be others begin to aggregate assets across the pre-K degree continuum. And not everybody will, will do that, but I think a few select companies will. We're spending a lot of time thinking about this, you know, wh- who's going to be the first $100 billion category in the um, tech space and, um, you know, how do they get there? And I think that will be a combination of very high organic growth combined with very smart acquisitions. I was in the board, as you well know, of Akash, the medical test prep company in India that Baiju acquired for a billion dollars. I think that was a really fascinating and very smart acquisition by Baiju. It sort of double jumps them into a whole different part of the market and ed tech into higher ed, more specific um, professional test prep. And then also gives them uh, both a site-based uh, model to combine, to create hybrid. Because I think hybrid is the future, right? So I think that's the other really interesting things. We're, we're seeing hybrid in K-12. We're seeing hy- hybrid in higher ed. We're going to see hybrid in corporate. So I think the M&A activity, whether it's site-based companies merging with you know online companies or just companies extending their reach, I think we got a lot of way to go on on consolidation. And I think with some of these companies, with Duolingo getting public, with others getting out there with currency, obviously Chegg, you know, ran a truck through the opportunity when they had a public currency. You know, they've done, I don't know how many acquisitions, probably 20 at this point, probably more than 20 at this point. And so, you know, Dan Roseswag took great advantage of that currency. I would expect Luis Von On to do the same thing. He's actually keynoting. He's the opening keynote at ASU GSV this year. I think he'll take that currency and become a very aggressive acquirer because if you read his prospectus, he says he wants to be a very broad learning platform and, you know, language really being only the first stop on the train line. Um, So, yeah, I think we got 10 really interesting years ahead of us as people try to figure out what it means to to create broad-based scaled learning delivery. I think the 2U edX merger is, acquisition is, fascinating and I think brilliant on both both sides. I think it was, you know, there have been some snarky reviews of it, but I think that's naive. I think it was a really, really smart move by both Harvard, MIT, and by 2U. It solved issues on both sides and, and creates a powerhouse that can effectively compete, particularly in the areas of student acquisition costs um, with Coursera. And I think it's great to have competition. I think that's a, a healthy thing for companies. I think it'll push Coursera to even, Coursera is the largest holding in our first fund. So I'm certainly biased, but I think it'll push Jeff Medging called it Coursera and his team on to, um, you know, even further greatness. So um, yeah, some really, really smart things going on in the market, which is, you know, really fun to see. 
Yeah, super fascinating breakdown, especially what you were just describing there with the omni-channel, like how there's hybrid, like Akash, which by the way, thanks again for that intro. We'll be having him on the podcast, I think just next week, actually. But uh, we've seen this in other sectors, like you know, e-commerce, healthcare. How do you deploy omni-channel? Like Warby Parker did this, Peloton's done this, obviously with having in-person and online. And so it just makes sense that there's the physical and the digital. Um, so you mentioned ASU GSP Summit, obviously last year we were all, you know, 5,000 plus people were very disappointed that because of COVID, we had to delay it. But I think next month in San Diego will be even bigger. What are you most excited about for this summit, especially after, you know, I think 18 months since we've all seen each other in that setting? Yeah, um, I, you know, I think we are, we are excited, I think, to be there. Um, the Hyatt keeps selling out and we have to keep pulling more rooms. So um, we're excited about the, the momentum on, um, uh, on attendance and, and um, that other people are excited to be there. You know, I think that we have a really great broad set of programs, everything from Arizona State. It's pretty remarkable. They've done a partnership with the former DreamWorks founders called Dreamscape, and they're, they're creating a physical experience on campus at ASU, but also around the country in some very large pods where you'll go in and, and learn in a multi-sensory way using AR and VR and simulation. And, and they're actually bringing a pod to San Diego and the capacity is limited. So it's gonna be a very hot ticket to get in and I can't wait to actually do it. But apparently it's just mind blowing in terms of the future of education and how you can experience it in this contained environment where you're, you're learning in all kinds of different modalities and with different deliveries. So very excited about that. I'll give you very cool. President Crow is actually bringing Walter Parks is sort of the famous movie producer who's their partner in this. And they're going to do a talk about it on Monday morning, actually, before the summit officially kicks off. But, um, but that'll be there. We have some terrific program around equity and access. We've got some great medical ed tech panels that you kindly assisted on, as well as Ascend and others. Love to see that part of the ed tech sector become more and more and more robust. And, you know, we have very rich content in early childhood and the care economy, the care, you know, obviously what COVID has laid bare, which we all sort of knew, is just the the impact on women of having an inadequate care system and, and the pandemic hit women um, particularly hard in terms of women leaving the workforce. So have some fantastic conversations around the care economy and uh, you know what those implications and how do we solve it and all that sort of thing. And then that, that abutting an important conversation because it's unprecedented funding for early childhood education coming out of all the Biden uh, relief bills. And um, you know, we are we are sitting at a once in a moment, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to adequately fund early childhood, K-12, and even higher education from some of these packages coming out of Congress in the Biden administration. So that's really exciting to talk about because it really is a potential game changer on a lot of levels. You know, we have great workforce learning content. We have some fantastic people some, for some really great companies coming to talk. We've got, you know, Common and Tiffany Haddish doing an opening keynote. We have Mindy Kaling doing a closing keynote. We've got Ronan Farrow. We've got some wonderful little stars mixed in the mix um, too, which is, which is fun. Jeremy Lin coming in with some conversation there. So, and then we have just really, really rich conversations across pre-K to gray education and skills and, and uh, yeah, really excited for that. So. All good. All of that sounds awesome. And uh, the ASU exhibit, I don't know if I'll be able to get in, but uh, I know them to be, I was first introduced to ASU through obviously your summit. Um, but then just this year, we signed a contract with their nurse practitioner program. So it's exciting to like start working and seeing how innovative they are, even on the ground, apart from the summit. They're crazy, crazy innovative. Yeah. 
I'm very excited about all of that stuff, but honing in on workforce development real quick, because, uh, you know, you were early on many of the companies like the greed, obviously you're in guild that specialize in workforce development and skills training. Pluralsight is another example. Last year at peak, 22 million jobs were lost in the U S from COVID-19. There's been a great rebound and now it's actually called the great resignation where a lot of companies are losing, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50% turnover as people decide, oh, I want to work remote or distributed. Uh, I don't want to work as much three days a week or four days a week instead of five. What are some of the big trends in workforce development you think will come out of this great resignation? And, and you know, one thing that you said in this case study that was really interesting is how these companies decided not to pull their learning and development budgets in 2020, even while they were suffering from COVID. And that includes the fast food companies and service and retail companies, not just the tech companies. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, people can't find workers. I mean, my soon-to-be daughter-in-law is uh, owns a mental health clinic for youth in Seattle. And she is just, it is very hard to hire and, you know, really at all levels. And uh, so I think that what, what comes out of it, I do think that that one of the great things that's happened in the workforce market is that employers have embraced the idea. And I don't know if they call it this, but they've embraced the idea that they are the fourth educational system. And um, I was on a Zoom yesterday with a lot of university faculty, and I'm not sure they understand that. And I don't know if they even like that, but, but I think that the, the reality is corporations, whether it's a situation with like we're an investor in Guild education, where Guild is bringing the online universities into the corporation, connecting them to frontline workers, um, as you described, which were not typically the workers who got the attention in terms of learning and development and giving them high school equivalency degrees and university degrees and then upskilling, reskilling certificates. And Guild is the fastest growing ed tech company that's ever been in the U.S. and, and one of the fastest growing SaaS companies, period, across all sectors. And that's not only reflective of the genius of its wonderful founder, Rachel Carlson, but it's also, I think, reflective of companies are getting it. They've got to be in there. They've got to be using tuition reimbursement. Tuition assistance is what the programs they deploy in, in the guild situation to actually support their employees, to give them upward and career mobility and life mobility, uh, whether they stay at their company or not. But back to your point about the both the great resignation, um, it puts more pressure on the need to take the people who haven't resigned and still sit in your company, but just don't have the right skills and actually get them upskilled and reskilled, you know, versus having to go out and recruit and do the same thing. So I think if this all works properly, we should have a lot of action around upward mobility because we, you know, we would be taking the folks who want to work, getting them skills that are high, you know, give them higher payment outcomes, higher income outcomes, nursing and healthcare is, is a poster child for all of this. And it should have over the next decade a really positive impact on earnings of the whole populace for those who who want to stay in the game and be very active. So it's frustrating right now. I think it's also going to cause, and you can already see this, it's certainly going to also force companies to do some more automation than they had been doing. And you're already seeing articles about companies trying to replace manual functions that people either don't want to do and they can't hire for. And you know, so I think that'll be another outcome, but I think in general, we're going to see just a huge pull on reskilling and upskilling. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of that, obviously, in, in healthcare. You know, our friends at Doximity just went public and their IPO popped in large part because they help employers find doctors. I mean, the cost. I love Doximity. I, I bought stock when it, when it came out. So, um, awesome. yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, it, it was such a simple yet, you know, yet brilliant idea because LinkedIn just can't meet the needs of certain professional groups. And, um, and I, you know, I'd be surprised if we didn't see some more doximities because I think it, you know, because it is a very unique issue within the healthcare sector 
around you know, jobs, communication requirements, and all that sort of thing. That's that's hard to do through a generalist platform. So I, I just think it's really really smart company. Yeah, there's incredible health and trusted health, which may have come across your radar. We've had both of them are on the podcast as well, and are all trying to figure out how to reduce the friction in the nursing labor market that that currently exists and was exacerbated last year. So I know we're coming up on time. So the last two questions I have for you is first, what advice would you give to someone right now at the beginning of their career, as far as you know, meeting the challenges of the post pandemic world? Huh. Well, what advice would I give? Uh, my advice would be, you know, one to have technological fluency, even if that's not the job you want to do. I think it's just smart to have, whether it's coding or real understanding of AI, because AI is becoming like air and water and, and it's, you know, it's impacting everything. And um, so I encourage and encourage my own children to just, just have fluency. Don't think you need to be in a box that doesn't include things like that, um, because these things are bleeding into each other. So I, I, I think to equip yourself with real fluency makes a lot of sense. I kind of went up through traditional routes of, you know, investment banking and then ended up being a venture capitalist all over time in this in this sector. But we did start a couple of companies. So we we did do the proverbial startup thing, but within the financial services sector, not in tech. And I I probably regret not having had that experience. And um I would just encourage people to take risks. You know, we're looking at hundred year lives and uh, there's lots of time to try things and um, no need to feel like you need to put yourself in a box too early, but that, you know, taking risks can really end up with some pretty great rewards. So that's what I would encourage. I love that. And plays into the pre-K to gray as well. Um, one of our teammates, their father just graduated from law school at 80 years old. Uh, and so I love that. And you know, Alan Patrick is one of our main investors. He's 86 and he says he's just getting started now. So Alan's a, a amazing. Well, my last final question, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we let you go for the day? You know, I think I covered most of it. If anybody wants to, you know, come to the ASU GS, anyone in the San Diego area, August 9th through the 11th and come to the ASU GSV Summit, I'm uh, I'm happy to give an osmosis discount if anybody's listening and wants to go, you know, Chip can help me on that. I think it's just going to be a great productive gathering of people who are just have a lot of pent up energy coming off of, of a crazy you know, and perversely very positive year for the sector in the face of the tragedies. But yeah, I, and I, you know, I think it's certainly fun to have the wind at our backs in, in ed tech right now. And I think the way I think about it, and people ask me, uh, potential investors, whether we worry about competition. And, and my reaction is no, I, you know, the, the worst thing was that education technology was so underfunded for so many decades, and it was such an important problem. And without appropriate capitalization, the problems were never going to be solved. So I um, come away incredibly optimistic with all the money flowing into ed tech that we're going to, it's just going to pull out more entrepreneurs to come up with more great ideas and more great solutions. And sure, some companies aren't going to work and they'll be too bad, but but that's life. So I'm really, really excited about the, the future 10 years here and think that it's going to be all to the benefit of global learners and global learners are everybody these days. So it's the benefit of all of us. So all good. Yeah, I share that same sentiment about competitors being actually collaborators because we're all trying to create and, and make more robust this category of education and, and learning. And with that, I definitely will vouch for ASU GSV. It's like my favorite conference. I was bummed I couldn't go last year. Obviously, nobody could, but very excited about next month. So, Deborah, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. All right, Shiv, thank you. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care.
For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.